Welcome to Podities, your home for strange stories, odd events, weird history, bizarre tales, unique places, and different perspectives. That's Meg. That's Kale. And it is 35 days until Halloween. Are you excited yet? I am. Do you know what you're doing for Halloween? Have you figured out costumes? Yes. Tony and I are being two characters from The Office that I don't want to give away yet. Okay. Because it's going to be epic. Um... I wouldn't know the difference, but it's okay. You yeah, don't have to tell me. <laughs> um, but yeah, because it's spooky season, I have been rewatching American Horror Story. Oh, have you? Because I love it. We were actually just talking today about, uh, oh goodness, what was the last one that just came out on, like, on Netflix? Apocalypse? Yes. That we were just talking about that one today. Mm-hmm. I had completely forgotten. I'm still back on Roanoke. Oh, yeah. You better finish that. I not I learned my lesson not to watch it at night. I'm not usually easily spooked, but it they they creeped me out. They succeeded. It took a few seasons, but they did it. People really seem to not like Roanoke, but I liked it. I thought it was nice and spooky. I wonder if that's why they didn't like it. Like yeah. did with the reasons. Yeah. I try not to um I try not to follow any pages talking about it because of the spoilers. So I don't follow any of it until after I've caught up to it. So I also miss out on people complaining about the next season. Are they done? Like, are they done? Are they finished with making seasons? Or are they still planning on going? No, there's one right now. No, I mean, like, after... Oh, yeah. I think um, it's renewed for two more seasons two more? after this. What would that put it at? Ten, I think. Ten? Yeah. Thirteen would be all I'm saying. Yeah. That would be, uh, that would be pretty cool. No, I've got to remember to keep watching it. That is perfect for spooky season. I was looking to put both of the Conjuring movies on my movie list. Yes, I've like seen the first. first I haven't seen the second. And then Annabelle also. Yeah. They'd be good additions to our um, spooky horror month-long movie marathon. Are you reading anything creepy or just watching? Just watching. Just watching? Yeah. What about you? Nope. Just, well, I mean, if you consider... If you consider reading about deadly decorations and clothing and stuff, horror, I mean, it, it, and you know, plagues and stuff, that is kind of its own horror, but yeah, more historical. No, I, uh, I tend to read the gruesome stuff in real life and then, uh, read a bunch of urban fantasy to kind of counterbalance it. I like a lot of the in-between folklore, like, Dracula type characters up to not quite high fantasy. I struggle with mm-hmm. that. I like the urban fantasy a lot and the paranormal romance. Agreed. I've been reading another series by Haley Edwards. I've I think I've only have two books left of hers and then I'll have read all of them. This one is also a spin-off of another series which I really liked. I like getting to know the characters and then not necessarily losing touch with them like in Women of the Other World. It's yeah. the same kind of idea. The trilogies all take place with a specific character, so then the next set is somebody they know, so you don't lose out on like updates about the worlds and everything. Cool. And this one's this one's really heavily um, in Fey lore, which mm-hmm. is really cool. I always love finding different perspectives on Fey culture. It's always really intriguing. Well, speaking of intriguing, so oh, this week, this what week. are we talking about? This week, we are going to talk about um, what was at one point considered folklore, but is indeed a very weird story um, about people eating arsenic. And then we will be talking about wallpaper, which 
I promise is not as boring as it seems. And we're going to finish with Napoleon Bonaparte. So it's kind of a, an intriguing ride. You ready? Yes. Okay. As the last spaces in the graveyard were filled, the waiting began. For 12 years they waited, and then it was time to exhume the coffins from the graves and seal them in the charnel house, the catacombs. The graves, once empty, would be filled again and the cycle would repeat. The land shortage here would allow no other options. Once in a while, one of these graves would hold someone who was still recognizable to a friend or family member. In comparison to the decomposed remains of the other cemetery residences, residents, these bodies looked more or less the same from the day they were buried. Mm -hmm. Had they been alive, their complexion would have been admirable and their eyes bright. In life, they were known as the toxophagy, and in death, they might be one of the first vampire origin stories. And it's, sidebar, it's one of my favorites. I love when authors have a realistic way to make legends true, where mm -hmm. they think about the biology behind supernatural shapeshifters or different urban legend yeah. creatures when they incorporated into history, science, everything else like that. A Makes lot of feel more real. Yeah, I think a lot of people enjoy it when it comes to terms of like alchemy. They love ways that magic like that could be real. Yeah. Um, but I like the origin stories because it's really hard to put an original spin on a classic. Sure. A lot of people try. And the other thing about this, so <laughs> sorry. So the or the vampire origin comes from because of the fact that after they had consumed arsenic for so long, they still looked like they were alive. And it's for this reason that people didn't always truly believe that they were dead. Thus, they were the mm. undead. And there's a, a little tidbit is that when arsenic is heated, it oxidizes and it releases an odor that's similar to garlic. Ah. Which I just think is like the bee's knees in terms of making, you know, urban legends and fantasy real. So, in a town in Styria and the district of Hartburg, there resided a group of villagers. Most were laborers, farmers, woodcutters, stablemen, tree fellers, and other active occupations, whose jobs were made more taxing than normal given their location in a mountainous region. Among the peasantry, some of these workers participated in the process of arsenicophagy, or consuming arsenic. The toxophagy believed that a consistent intake of arsenic was beneficial to their health and that it improved their appearance. So did it? Yes and no. The enviable complexion I mentioned earlier would today be considered more of a pallor, as the paleness of the skin wasn't natural. It didn't look natural, and it was caused by the death of red blood cells in your face. So you looked more gravely ill, in my opinion, than spooky, than than pale and fashionable. Yeah. Um, and then arsenic is also a natural disinfectant, which meant that it kills it kills all the natural bacteria, but it also kills the bacteria that causes skin blemishes. So they were known to have rosy, rounded cheeks with a very clear complexion and very bright eyes, you know, which sounds like you would think that kind of person is healthy according to, I guess, to stereotypes. I don't really yeah. know what's dictated that over time. But it's these characteristics that led to the well-preserved state of the bodies um, in reburial. And this is the part where it gets good. I feel like Billy Mays, but there's more. A surprising twist that doesn't really occur when I read about poison. You don't really think 
there's going to be good yeah. outcomes with it. So these sheep herders and other climbers that were rumored to be able to trek the mountain easily without losing their breath or suffering from altitude sickness, it was discovered that the small doses they consumed are in fact stimulating and it can accelerate their metabolism. So could these attributes be responsible for the rumors? Perhaps. Do I think it could at least partially be placebo effect or maybe and mind over matter? If we take history as a guide, then I do believe that. So to ensure safety for the consumer, a beginner arsenic eater was urged to time their dosage to coincide with the waxing moon, which is the time between a new moon and a full moon. In this stage, the moon continues to get larger every night. So for the toxophagy, got it. You got it. They began with the smallest dose on the new moon, and then they kept increasing until the night of the full moon when they would change the dose. It would be decreased, and then they would use, they would consume aloe to try to purge their body. Yeah, it does. It works. It's been one of those things throughout history. I had no idea. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, we used it growing up to treat sunburns and stuff. There's a lot of topical applications for it, but yeah, yeah I've, I've ran into a few occurrences in history where it's consumed... Eat it. Oh, I can't oh, imagine God. that tastes gross. Or, <laughs> I can't imagine that tastes good. So after they purged their bodies, they can split up the doses however they saw fit. Every other day, every few days, once or twice a week. In total, most records of arsenic eaters have them eating four to eight grains in one sitting without dying or suffering any noticeable injuries. When considering their survival, we noticed ourselves discounting the danger. Mm-hmm. Read at least four cases of such toxophagy, ingesting large quantities of arsenic in front of doctors and not only surviving, but they seemed the same. They, they did. They didn't seem to have suffered any negative consequences. You would think someone who had ingested poison would have, but that's what happens when their tolerance builds up, I guess. Yeah. And unfortunately, the same poison that didn't poison them is addictive. And if one of them... If a villager sees consumption, they would go suffer symptoms of withdrawal. It's rumored that the use of arsenic with horses to improve and make their coat shinier, which is awful. Yeah. Whoever came up with that sucks. We've we've Ugh. done a lot of bad things to animals throughout time. Um, but yeah, it influenced these yeah. arsenic eaters' hysteria. And then these stories of arsenic eaters influenced physicians to prescribe an apothecary to carry and sell arsenic in every conceivable product and marketed it wherever and however they could. It became, they made bank off of it. It yeah. was, it, cra it sounds crazy to us now, but, you know, this is pre-FDA, pre-CDC, pre-all the, yeah. all the abbreviations. <laughs> so there's two bits that predate the written accounts of the arsenic eaters, but I think they're both important to keep in mind. Because, let's see, so the first written account of the toxophagy occurred in 1851. For our first example, we're going to go back to the Industrial Revolution, which occurred from 1760 to 1840, and with it came a huge demand for metal. The raw product coming out of the ground, especially from mining, uh, copper mining especially, was ore. And in our case, a mix of metal and arsenic, the latter of which was considered waste product. 
Arsenic can be extracted from many types of metal, such as the copper, lead, gold, tin, and cobalt. Miners would throw the ore into the fire. The arsenic would react with the oxygen and form arsenic trioxide, the white stuff, the inheritor's powder, the king of poisons, the same type of arsenic that could be found layered inside chimneys across the world. Cleaned and scraped out, it could be sold for a nice sum of money. And then next, we have the media. At this point in time, newspapers are now being sold at a fraction of their previous cost. Thank you, tax decrease. And literacy rates are climbing, which is super exciting. More people reading. So the press and those responsible for it knew, just like today, the drama, murder, intrigue, poison, sells. The newspapers told tales of discovery and wonder at people who cheated death. Mailers encouraged women to invest in and use various arsenic-laden beauty products like face washes, blushes, hair products, and apothecaries and other shops offered arsenic by the bucket full. People everywhere could read about arsenic eaters and all the wonderful uses that it had. And did you know that the toxophagy were also known as ratsbane eaters? It's because of arsenic's common use as a rodenticide. Arsenic is naturally encouraging carcinogen, and to this day, it is still used in poisons, but it's more limited. Insecticides, um, it can be used to treat wood for building to help prevent mold and fungi and termite damage. So if you, if you think about that, it keeps away the bugs, but at one point in time, we would dunk our wheat grain seed into arsenic as an insecticide and then grow it, and we would dunk meat, cuts of meat into arsenic, so that way it kept the flies away, and mm. we would consume it. Nice. So here we go. The same qualities that made arsenic the top choice for poisons made a great fit for wallpaper. It was inexpensive and very easy to come by, obviously. Yep. It was also found that when added to pigments, the arsenic made colors more vibrant and therefore more desirable. Wallpapered rooms in the Victorian era were a of cleanliness. Because it wasn't always practical or possible to wipe down and clean the walls, the previous wallpapers were designed and made in such a way as to hide scuff marks and other signs of wear and tear. That was until Shields. Yep. Shields Green. Shields Green. In the late 18th century, um, Carl Scheele, who was a German scientist, produced a brilliant green color through his use of arsenic. It became the most fashionable color of the 19th century. And was widely popular for everything. Everything. Despite the danger, people everywhere ignored the hazard and acted as though they were bitten as people were bitten by witch fever. It caught on that fast. Shields Green was like the Pantone color of the year, except it lasted decades. Clothing, furniture, shoes, gloves, soap, postage stamps, curtains and drapes, wrapping paper, children's toys, God, paint, wallpaper... Many seem to believe these items were safe unless you licked them, yep. including the wallpaper. Yep. A dress worn with a hoop skirt, which was the popular fashion at the time, required more than 20 yards of fabric, all of it containing arsenic. The taxophagy from earlier were known to consume four to eight grains of arsenic without dying, which is enough to kill another adult who didn't work up a tolerance of the poison. One hoop skirt contained 60 grains of arsenic per yard. 
Mm-hmm. Most of the pigment was loosely adhered, and it left a deadly wake of arsenic dust in it. God forbid you walk into somebody accidentally, and it would release the dust, or there were accounts of taking a towel or a cloth of some kind and rubbing it against the fabric, and it comes away with dye on it. That's how loosely it was adhered. I wonder how many animals it ended up killing, too, with Ugh. them, you know, sniffing the ground and eating things that, you know, I mean, God. Yeah, it's, I think that it's a, it's a much more wide-reaching thing than just whoever wore it being poisoned. Yeah. So you might have doubts these people knew the danger. Maybe they didn't know the arsenic used to poison vermin and pests was the same one that they spritzed on their face. I know that I did. I think you did, too. (laughs) But they knew. For instance, uh, we've stumbled across multiple sets of recipes and directions for using flypaper to create a facial tonic. That's right. Said tonic was created from soaking flypaper in water to extract the poison. Yep. Into the water and then splashed on your face every day. Yep. And if you wanted to get more more arsenic out of it, other than what you could get by just soaking it, using hotter or warmer water would dissolve more of the arsenic from the flypaper so it would be stronger. Nice. So by 1858, there are estimates that 100 million square miles of arsenic green paper were on the walls of homes and offices throughout Great Britain. The popularity of landscape wallpaper skyrocketed for two main reasons. The landscapes directly reflected the popularity of the vibrant green pigments in society, and for the first time, these wallpapers did not repeat. On top of this, steam machines are imported to replace manual labor, producing in one day what it would take a printer four years to create. And then the price of paper plunges. Caught up in this wallpaper fad, new paper would be added over the old, creating layer after layer. Yeah, you didn't you didn't have people material. scraping wallpaper in between. And wallpaper got really dirty at that time, so what what's the point? Just slap it over the pre existing one and yeah. um if you especially if you rented a room and you didn't own a house yeah. You know, it was easier. Yeah. It's easy to understand. In the 1870s, two children were poisoned when they attempted to make green paint during arts and crafts, probably by sticking their hands in their mouth and rubbing them against the wall. Mm-hmm. It worked. Yeah. Unfortunately, it wasn't just licking the wallpaper that wasn't safe. A room lined in our favorite green wallpaper was estimated to be one-third toxic paint by weight. And it wasn't just the expensive whatever name brand was popular in the 19th century. Inexpensive papers showed the same results as did papers with varnish or other coatings to keep the pigments from loosening. And what's worse is that in some situations, the pigments were hardly attached to the paper, meaning they could transfer from contact. Imagine blotting your lipstick, but with arsenical wallpaper. The color picked up from that brief encounter was only the beginning. What people couldn't see or didn't want to see was that these were essentially rooms of death. Edgar Allan Poe could have written about them. It could have been a poem. Proximity to the wallpaper, just working at your desk in your office day in and day out, was enough to make you sick. The slow poisoning that you would endure would likely be written off, if not ignored completely, and you would slowly become sicker over time. It took many, many casualties for the public to be roused into making changes. See, it wasn't just Shields Green that was toxic, although that was the favorite, and it wasn't just the wallpaper. Red and white pigments and paints also contained arsenic, so you couldn't judge safety off of one color alone. When these houses were being renovated, 
everything in the toxic rooms needed to be replaced. Venetian blinds gave us dust every time they were opened and closed. You add that with the dust from the wallpapers, furniture, carpet, lampshades, clothing. If it didn't have arsenic before, it did now. It was all contaminated. And it was only when houses and rooms were completely emptied of these toxic furnishings that the accidental poisoning stopped. People got better and realized that uh, it was happening. And that's what it took for the public to catch on. And by the late 19th century, the public's love of toxic decor was overshadowed by the dangers opposed. The arsenic-laden papers were deemed less fashionable and were replaced with safe, arsenic-free paper. The new and improved paper being developed and marketed was referred to as patent hygienic wallpapers. At the same time in America, the Michigan State Board of Health was leading the way by piecing together a book comprised of poisonous wallpaper samples titled Shadows from the Wall of Death. Somebody make that a band name right Seriously. now, please. A copy was placed in each library in the state. To date, every few arsenical wallpapers have survived. However, a four-panel installation from 1834 titled Scenes of North America still exists in the diplomatic reception room of the White House. If we ever get a diplomatic president, maybe we'll be able to see the room and the painting. Cough, cough. So let's take a step back for a minute and talk about poison in general. There are 1,200 kinds of poisonous marine organisms. Australia. <clears throat> I'm looking at yeah, you, right? Australia. It's got to be like at least a 1,000 right there. I feel like 700 poisonous fish, 400 venomous snakes, 60 ticks. I think that scares me more than anything. There's a really wonderful episode of this podcast, Will Kill You, um, that they do an episode on ticks and Lyme oh. disease. It will. It, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing you want to listen to, but I have found that sometimes if you can tackle an anxiety by confronting your brain with logical and real facts and evidence, you might feel more in control. So I definitely recommend it. And I'll, uh, back to you. <laughs> 75 scorpions, 200 spiders. I actually expected that to be more. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I wonder if our uh, overall, like, huge group fear of them has made it them kind of worse than they are. Well, and they're all just mean-looking little bitches. Yeah. Like, they're not cute. Yeah, no. Well. No. No? Okay. No. <laughs> 750 poisons and more than 1,000 plant species and several birds whose feathers are toxic when touched or ingested. But also, who's ingesting bird feathers? Oh, no, um, you, for some of them, likely, um, you could probably touch the feathers and then eat something, and the, the oh, toxin okay. would transfer. That makes sense. Yeah. But, I don't know, I mean, there probably have been people at some point that ate birds with the feathers on and yeah, got sick from true. it. And last time, we were talking about things that were commonly used as antidotes. Yes. Horns. Or unicorn horn. Yep. If you haven't seen, did you, oh, I sent you the pictures, the, the unicorn horn thrown. That yep. was really yeah. like narwhal tusks and um, and bazaars. Yep, those gross like goat hairball. Yep, a hairball. Mm. And another one that we didn't talk about was pearls. I forgot about pearls. They would be ground into powder. Were there was there something specific, or was it of like one of those other very wide ranging medicines? Wide ranging, wide -ranging? Yeah, definitely. That's not surprising. It was probably, wasn't it also one of those that might have been added to drinks at one point? 
Because it was also thought to... Wine, probably. Wine. I feel like I remember a story about that. Yeah. And, of course, there are so many poisonings that have happened throughout history. So many. Fiction and nonfiction. Yep, and some fiction that takes after real life, and I'm sure probably some real life that was copied from fiction. Yeah. For covering all our bases. Obviously, the Ninja Turtles are real, but... Yes. (laughs) So, a couple... Um, examples. The first one, Hercules. Yes. I have seen the Disney movie a bajillion times, but realized that I apparently know nothing about him. Oh, no. No, the Dis. Okay, I love Hercules. I can sing it from memory without having the audio on. Not ashamed at all. It's a great, like, thing. Anyway, it's get your feet moving, that one. Um, no, it's very not historically accurate. None of them are. I think maybe one of the closest might be the Dwayne Johnson one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which, if you like Dwayne Johnson and you haven't seen it, watch it. It's not historically accurate. Another podcast I listened to, Spirits did, um, they watched Hercules and then they reviewed it and compared and contrasted Mm -hmm. to mythology. Well, I don't remember ever reading about him, but... So, Hercules invented what some people consider to be the world's first biological weapon. He dipped his arrows in serpent's venom. And his wife got mad when he cheated on her. So she sent him a robe that she had dipped in the blood of an enemy that he had killed with his poison arrow. And he got poisoned by his robe. And he died. I did not know he that. He passed the arrows on to Phil, yeah, the trainer. This is Danny oh, right, DeVito yeah. in the movie, right? Danny the voice, yeah. yeah. And uh, Phil takes possession of them and eventually ends up destroying them, if I remember correctly, because he doesn't want to be burdened with holding on to something that dangerous. Mm-hmm. Another popular example that's probably more a sad one is the Jonestown Massacre. Yeah. That's where the famous phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, was born where Reverend Jim Jones ordered his followers to drink a lethal concoction of cyanide and sedatives mixed in the grape punch. I never realized that there were people who protested and they were shot. And over 900 people were killed. I never realized it was that many. I've listened to arguments about whether or not um, Jim Jones is an American terrorist. Oh, I would say he absolutely was. Well, I think when you throw in psychological aspects, people start to get... I don't know, the conversations go back and forth. I agree, um, there's just a lot of back and forth on it. People are going to have an opinion about something that devastating. Yeah, that's true. And then another very famous one, Socrates. And you didn't even hesitate when I mentioned that originally. You just knew that. Yep. Why don't you go ahead and... He was, I mean, he's one of the most quoted figures, I think, from that time range. I see references to him all the time when I'm studying ancient medicine, math, astrology, astronomy, anything. He was convicted of influencing the youth of Athens. Is that what we were saying? And um, he was given, I believe, a little leniency with how he was killed, how he received his capital punishment. He chose to drink a drink made of hemlock, which... Probably wasn't very pretty. It's very poisonous. And he knew this. Yeah, apparently they gave him a choice. He could either be thrown into a pit, fastened by iron bands secured with nails to a board, or drink the hemlock. I would have, yes. Right, I think he, That's, yeah. I'm surprised he got, I'm surprised he received a, a choice. 
Yeah. It might I might have too. been a little bit of a bleed over from somebody responsible as a last. I mean, he was a pivotal character. He really was. Yeah, for sure. Oh, so the time frame going back to Shields Green was invented to the peak of our cynical wallpaper is in the time range of 1775 to 1858. So really not that long ago in the time frame yeah. of things. And for our last section or segment of the episode, this is exactly <laughs> this is exactly where we want to be. So St. Helena is where we are. It's a very, very small island in the South Atlantic. I read at one point that it's famous for, its claim to fame is being in the middle of nowhere. That that's what they wanted, and they found it, I guess. It's a small island, really a parcel of land that only measures 47 square miles, and today has a current population of just over 4,500 residents. It's home to legendary coffee beans that sell for $9.10 an ounce. I want to try that coffee, whatever it is. Is if, that the one where the cat poops out the bean? No, not cat. Monkey. There's one that's monkeys. There's one that's monkeys. I'm pretty sure there's one that's cats, too. There, I think there's... Isn't there something with a sloth? There's another animal that picks berries. Something like that. I, that I, of, of course though? this is... No, of, <laughs> I, of course this would be one of those instances where this is something we'd normally remember, right. but now that we're on the spot, it just... Boop. I can't remember what it is, but there was a fantastic article I read where the two people that went to um, the island were, received cups of the coffee and said it was divine. And I'm very curious now. But... Back to what's important for the episode is that this small island was home to Napoleon Bonaparte during his final years of life. He was exiled in 1815, and he would be there until his death in 1821. He called St. Helena home for just six short years. He was exiled with a, I don't want to say partner, but an accompaniment, um, a, gen a person by the name of Count de Montholon, and he described their destination as that it resembled an entrance to the infernal regions. Nothing was to be seen but rows of guns and black cliffs built as if by a demon's hand to bind together the rocky peaks. That's a strong quote. That, it's, it looks nothing like it does today, obviously, back then, and it's a very pleasant look now. I can't imagine how dark and desolate that must have felt, but I suppose that's the whole point. Yeah. And in life, Napoleon Bonaparte was an ambitious, driven individual. Of this, it was very clear. From a young age, he prospered in the military. At the age of 24, he became a general, and at 26, he began his first military campaign. Could you imagine? No, I'm 24, and the idea of that, like... That's... What even? Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, so he won battle after battle, heralded as a war hero in France. He was emperor for more than a decade, amassed a large empire as he fought his way through the Napoleonic Wars. His keen mind and tactical skills that assisted his wins were the same characteristics that brought down his downfall brought on. Skipping over the lengthy military history that takes up most of his life story, and we're going to jump right into his timeline around 1814, skirting all the military stuff. And at this point in time, we find Napoleon abdicated of his thrones. He's considered a threat against the restoration of peace in Europe and exiled not once, but twice. The first time, he was exiled to Alba. While there, he was allowed to retain his title of emperor and had sovereignty over the island. Unsurprisingly, he created a small navy and army. 
you can take the war out of the general, but not the general out of the war. So at this point in time, he receives news that his ex-wife has passed away. He's been separated his son from his son. He was promised uh, an allowance while exiled, and he had been cut off completely. This was not the life that Napoleon had, not the life that he wanted to accept, and he escaped. There were rumors abound that Napoleon would soon be banished to the island of St. Helena, and once he surrendered, he was caught. It, it was true, and he knew, and I think that's part of why he took the risk of fleeing. At the beginning of his banishment, there were no buildings on the island fit for someone such as himself. While he waited for his future lodging to be renovated, he made polite with a family there that he stayed with, and I'd go so far as to say friendly. Um, he made friends with a 13-year-old daughter, not totally not in a creepy way. Um, I believe she could speak the same language, but her parents couldn't. He was like oh, playing okay. hide and seek with her. It was, it sounds like just a, a general honest, you know, relationship. And he entertained visitors. He wrote memoirs about himself and he took in the sights, so to speak. Um, he even had a hand in designing the gardens while he was there, cultivating and picking out and, and keeping, what's the word I'm looking for? maintaining them and those gardens are actually still there to this day so if you go there for a cup of coffee after like probably a 20-hour plane ride to the middle of nowhere <laughs> um you can see the gardens that he had a hand in um but so the appointment of a new governor to the island happens next and that's really what changes everything for him because this exile doesn't really sound like exile you know yeah, he's taking insane. horseback riding he's entertaining visitors i mean he's writing about himself. It doesn't sound too awful. But once this new governor was appointed, his visits were cut off. He was no longer allowed to visit the family or the child that he had befriended. His mail was read and monitored. He was chaperoned everywhere he went, whether it was on foot, on horseback. Um, and it eventually led to him giving up the horseback riding completely um, because he didn't like being followed, obviously. But Essentially, what it boils down to is that this governor was worried that Napoleon was going to escape again because he just had. So his efforts were to keep a vigilant watch on Napoleon's whereabouts. Everywhere he went, with no one to visit him, he was stuck in this lodging called Longwood House. And I've mentioned that he was a studious fellow, writing a book about himself, multiple. He also wrote a book about his hero, Caesar. And I couldn't tell if he had an office or a study where he worked, but I can easily imagine it. Yeah, it was, assume, yeah. yeah he, he, when you look at a picture of Napoleon, the painters that did such amazing jobs of it, it just screams, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, pay attention to this person and pay them respect because oh, they yeah. look like the type of person that demands that from people just by their presence. Um, but the room where he would have written his memoirs and his books was slowly poisoning him because, that's right, our favorite green wallpaper is in fashion and adorned the rooms in multiple it adorned the walls in multiple rooms of the house. And the damp maritime climate combined with the layers upon layers of layers of wallpaper we talked about before, it created the perfect setting for the generation of toxic gas. That wallpaper was so popular, it was literally in the middle of nowhere. It was. Yep. It was. 
And this is where Napoleon Bonaparte died on the island in 1821. Records show that the room in which he passed had green wallpaper, and in 2008, modern testing determined that a piece which had been saved of the wallpaper, it tested positive for Shields Green. And samples of his hair that were taken and tested showed positive for arsenic. But not just once or one fatal dose, it showed long-term exposure, like a slow poisoning over time, and it started before his anxiety. So it wasn't just being at St. Helena that caused those test results. And uh, But given what we've talked about and knowing how prevalent arsenical household items were, can we be surprised? Yeah, seriously. Um, he's banished. It rains all the time. It's a wet environment. You know, breathing in the wallpaper. But even Napoleon himself was aware of the threat of poison, and according to stories and rumors, he was paranoid enough that he chose to ingest small amounts of arsenic on a regular basis, just like the toxophagy. That's just one of the many stories, though. If you're interested in it, there's a lot of speculation and doubts and conspiracy. There's a lot mm. to read up on, on him if you're interested in more of his life. And what I do know, or what I'm willing to wager, is that while the wallpaper didn't kill him outright, it didn't help. This, I find this interesting that there are two resting places for our ex-emperor. The first is a simple, single plot on St. Helena, and the second is a grand stone sarcophagus in a crypt in France. After Napoleon's body was brought back to France from exile, his original burial site was deserted but still maintained, and today a wrought iron fence surrounds the empty grave with a blank headstone inside. The inscription couldn't be agreed upon, while the French wanted it to say Napoleon, the British refused unless his last name, Bonaparte, was added. They apparently could not reconcile, and instead the stone went blank, a grim reminder of the controversial life and death of Napoleon Bonaparte. That's some petty-ass shit, too. Like, yeah. Really, France? You couldn't just add his last name on there? <laughs> the, the crypt, I'll post a picture of it, is gorgeous. When his body was brought back, it's this grand, it almost looks like mythological, larger than life that he's reburied in. And it's, it's shown in this room that has sculptures around the outside. It's really a, a beautiful resting place. So regardless of the drama and speculation surrounding his life and death, his final resting place looks very like a beautiful, peaceful place. It's interesting. I've never been too interested in Napoleon Bonaparte. I feel like yeah, one of the right. only things I remember from him from high school was the Napoleonic Wars and that um, him being short, which isn't true. Short, no, right? he wasn't. And I don't... 5'5", five, five, I believe. Yeah. Which For I feel time. like back then was average. I mean, that's what... That's how tall I am right now and I'm... Granted, I'm a typical or average height for my age and sex, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I never knew that. Yeah, he wasn't short. Not happening. And this part, this first part of the episode, airing this Friday, is sort of a part one. It's not really an official two-parter, but there's so much exciting to talk about when we take into account arsenic, so that instead of having to pick and choose and narrow it down to only three topics, I kind of spread it out a little bit. So we'll be back again next week to talk more about arsenic, but we're going to take a little bit of a different path, and we're going to talk about some really messed up makeup nice. recipes. We're going to talk about some really weird fashion, like really weird. Like, did you know that when they had those grand, glorious updos that the oldie time oh, people yeah. had, it was expected you would wear them for weeks at a time. 
Oh my god. Weeks because it was it took so much, so much time, so much money to put your hair up to the point that you couldn't walk into all carriages. Uh, you couldn't walk through all doorways because the hair got so large. You had to have like a special, could have a special like wood pallet pillow thing to help keep your hair in place while you slept. Jeez. So that's just, that's just one <laughs> of the really weird fashion things that we're going to talk about next week. It'll be fun. Oh, I'm excited. Me too. And so in the meantime, you can find us and uh, a blooper reel going up this week in our Patreon account. And you can find us at the Potatorium. And on Instagram. At an ode to the odd. And Twitter. Twitter. Twitter and what's the other one that we're on? Huh? So great. It's on our business cards. Yeah. This is really great. We don't edit anything, just so you know, too. So this is us on the spot being anxious. Well, how is it? Uh, bags of bones. What? Did you see that, that skeleton thing? The next time that you're feeling sad, just remember that you're like a bag of bones with... Meat skeleton. Meat skeleton. Oh, that sounds so gross. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you next week. Yeah. And oh, yep. Yeah, right. So the Twitter Potties oh, yeah. underscore Instagram and Ode to the Odd. And if you're looking for us anywhere and you can't find the links, feel free to post somewhere. Yeah. We try to make it pretty public, and we're still learning as we go. So thanks for tuning in with us, and we'll see you next week. Don't lick the wallpaper. <laughs> Stay weird. Oh, <laughs> my